Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Oh my God, I am so full. I'm so full. Benihana always sounds so good, and then we eat way too much. Because it is so good. I know. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Sarah Fain, a TV writer and producer living in Ojai, right outside of L.A., and with me is my high school friend and writing partner, Liz. That's me, Liz Craft. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career in friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. Today, this is very exciting, we're going to talk to one of our oldest friends, and I mean like the three of us ran our high school newspaper together kind of old friends. Todd Shulkin, and like us, Todd has grown up and he's now a manager and producer in Los Angeles. We're gonna reminisce a little and also talk to Todd about his latest project, the show Julia on Max, which is about to air its second season. This week's Hollywood hack comes from one of our Happier in Hollywood retreat attendees. Again, they had so many great ideas. And of course, Liz saw another celebrity, plus she has a Julia Child-inspired recommendation. And Sarah, a little bit of update. As we've mentioned, we are prepping our annual holiday gift list episode. If there is a gift that you love, that you think is right for our list, please send it to us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. And then I am sure that people are starting to come up with their 24 for 24 lists. I know I am, and I stole a really good one from the Happier ladies podcast, (laughs) but I need more. I have a really hard time making these lists for some reason. So if anyone has great, simple things to put on their list, please also email that or post it in our Facebook group. Yeah, so far, Sarah, I have big ideas, like big undertakings, but I don't have any of those little ones that are easy to cross off. Yes. And then, Sarah, in episode 338, we talked about the benefit of you knowing your neighbors. And we have heard from so many people, including in Los Angeles, where we said nobody knows their neighbors, and all over who love your neighbors. We got a great email from Emily. She says, I started a walking club in my neighborhood. I texted the neighbors I knew. They invited some of their neighbors or family members too. We go on two walks a week. The ladies' ages range from 30 to 82. We do small loops if the older ladies are joining us in case we need to stop at their house and drop them off and keep going. Men and dogs are welcome, but the guys haven't joined yet. Sometimes we drink wine. It's been wonderful. We found out that two ladies that live five houses away work at the same building three towns over. That is so incredible. I love it. I also love the wine and walk. I mean, that's great. (laughs) Yes, an evening walk with a glass of wine. How lovely. Oh, Emily, thank you for for writing in about that. Okay, Sarah, it is time for From the Treadmill Desk of, in which we discuss what's most pressing in our work psyches— 
And this week, we get to interview our friend, literary manager and producer, Todd Shulkin. Sarah, we often tell the story that when we moved to Los Angeles, we had one friend in L.A., and he's here. It's Todd. Yay! Todd Shulkin founded Shulkin Management in 2007 to represent film and television content creators, authors, and celebrity estates, their intellectual property, and brands. Todd serves as executive director of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, stewarding the foundation's assets, which include books, television programs, and the publicity rights of American culinary icon Julia Child. His producing experience includes serving as a consulting producer on on Max's Julia scripted series, now in its second season, starring Sarah Lancashire, David Hyde Pierce, Isabella Rossellini, and B.B. Newworth. Todd spent five years as an advertising executive for WPP Group Agencies and was previously a literary agent at Innovative Artists, where he helped discover writer-director Christopher Nolan and sold Nolan's film Memento. Welcome, Todd. Hey, Todd. It's great to be here. Good morning. Thank you. Okay, so we've known each other so long that we have nicknames. You're Toddly, I'm Fina. And Liz, is, has Liz just always been Liz? That is her nickname. <laughs> yes, it is a nickname, <laughs> short for Elizabeth. So I guess that's... Much to her mother's consternation. Right, your, your mother doesn't call you Liz, does she? No, she does not. Never. Absolutely. No one in my family does. <laughs> yeah, are you Elizabeth Unhappier? Yes. Firmly. So I'm Elizabeth Unhappier. I'm Liz here, plus I have the last name Kraft, the last name Fierro. I just have... All my monogram stuff has, you know, it's many a se- different It's a sentence rather initials. than just initials. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Todd, let's talk about Chris Nolan for a second. So oh, right. you were going okay. way back. Mm-hmm. We were saying that when Sarah and I moved to L.A., we always tell the story that we had one friend in L.A., and that friend got us an agent. Thank you for that. Yes. You're and welcome. That friend I don't was think I was you. your only friend in L.A. That's not true. Pretty much. I might have been your only friend with a proper job. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely. <laughs> And at that time, you were an agent at Innovative Artists, and Chris Nolan, who has gone on to be one of the biggest directors of our time, was your client. That's correct. So I want to hear about how that came to be and just talk about it for a minute. You mean, how did did Chris Nolan end up being one of my clients when I was a lit Yes, yes. You know, it's kind of a classic Hollywood way of working is I knew an executive called Jennifer Leshnick, who I'd love to know what happened to her because she was terrific. And she worked for Ridley Scott's company, for Scott Free. And we just, I don't know, I used to send material to her. And she said, hey, I, I met this guy. He's British. He seems really talented. I like his short. Do you want to see his stuff and meet him? Because she and a variety of other people, because he and Emma Thomas, his now wife or then girlfriend, and their friend Aaron Ryder were all readers at working title films. In fact, actually, sorry, that's not right. Aaron was a reader, I think, or a junior executive. Chris might have been a reader. And Emma was one of the partners in working title assistant. So they were just making the rounds. And so I watched uh, what became, which was following, which was his student film and liked it and met with him. And he was beating around and, you know, we connected. I think I probably was less... BSE than most of the people he was meeting with. And he is a very strong BS meter. And so we just decided to work together. And then 
I'm not sure if I'd read Memento right away or if it was all based on following. I don't remember. But I do remember the first time I read Memento. Uh, we were living in, I don't know if you remember that apartment we had on Hauser that was like two yes. levels. Yes, that was a great one. Yeah, no view, but two levels. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I remember reading the script being like, I'd never read anything like that. I thought it was so cool, very confusing. I thought no one would understand it, but I loved it enough to like try. And then I got like all ready and Chris and Emma, Emma wasn't as directly involved then, at least outwardly. And they kind of auditioned me, like, what was I going to do with it? And I had a whole list and was ready and I was ready for all the stupid responses you get. And Aaron Ryder called me up and was like, okay, we're going to make this movie. I'm like, who's we and what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I've got this job at New Market Capital and I can't remember the two partners' names. They're like, I, you know, I already talked to Chris and we're going to make the movie. And I'm like, uh okay. And so then I called Chris and was like, do you want me to shop this or do you want to make the movie with Aaron? And he's like, oh no, I talked to Aaron. We're all set. We're going to do the movie with these guys. Oh my God. Wow. Well, I remember when Following came out, it was, you begged us to go opening weekend (laughs) to New Art. To the New Art, yeah. Because you said, this is my client. I'm telling you, he's so talented. We need to sell tickets, you guys. Please, please go. And we went, and we were like, oh, my God. This guy is going to be the biggest director ever. Um, and it was so exciting. Oh, my gosh. I don't remember that. So thank you for yes. jogging my memory. That must. I remember following went to the Toronto Film Festival, and there was a producer named Peter Broadwick who worked for – a kind of small indie distributor that specialized in like first-time directors. And they put finishing funds into following to kind of up the sound and get it releasable. Because it was it's only like 88 minutes or something like that. And he shot it in film school in London. So we were like, oh, Todd wants us to go see this movie. (laughs) Fine, we'll go see it. And I mean, I will never forget coming out of that theater and just being like, holy shit, this is a real talent. Wow. Yeah, no, well, I remember being at Toronto when it screened, and, and that was sort of a moment when things started taking off, And um, but it was also a long time ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, speaking of, you then moved to London for quite a long time. So yep. how hard was it? How many years were you in London? Nine. So how hard was it to maintain a career in entertainment while living in London? And do you think it's easier now, like if you were still there, than it was pre-pandemic? Well, I think I hit it at the right time where technology was, even before the pandemic, making that more possible. And I remember, though, being really freaked out. It was like, have I ruined my career and my life? And what am I doing? And several months before I left and we'd already decided to move, I got this call from a family friend named Susie Davidson who had worked for both my ex-mother-in-law, Ann Willen, and for Julia Child. And Susie said, I need help and advice with the foundation. I don't think she used the word I'm in over her head, but she was like, this is not my expertise. I'm running it. And I was like, oh, well, I really could help you, but I'm moving to London. Surely that doesn't work for you. And she said, and again, this is pre-pandemic. This is 2011. Um, Well, we're virtual, so maybe it could work. And why don't we try it? You know, you can be a consultant and let's just see. But the net result of this, and this is one of those career serendipity things, was I moved over. 
I started the job with the working with the foundation January 1st, 2012. I was in my ex-brother-in-law's house in France, which was still under construction, hmm. with two little kids, our nanny from LA, <laughs> who did not speak French, and Emma was either in Brussels or some other country. And I adjusted my schedule to suit working with them, which meant I adjusted everything else with LA. And that just meant that I was, I, I sort of, all this Hollywood stuff that I sort of thought would fall by the wayside and I would transition to something more English did not. And that that was sort of how it all worked together. And then between everything being internet connected and email and I don't know what we used then. Skype, I guess. We didn't do that many video <laughs> calls. but And then it also happens that with the Julia Child Foundation, a lot of the relationships are on the East Coast of the U.S. And actually, London, New York is a much easier time change than New York, L.A., believe it or not. Well, and Todd, you knew Julia Child. Mm -hmm. And she is one of the most beloved figures, I think, of all time. I mean, nobody doesn't love Julia Child why do you think she stays so popular and so much a part of the zeitgeist? Well, you know, I often say she's kind of endlessly inspiring. And I think there are certain things I think it's beyond food. Like, obviously, she's very beloved by people who are really into food and cooking. But I think she's also inspirational because she became famous without looking like Marilyn Monroe or any kind of stereo or Charlize Theron or anyone like that, she's, you know, no one's description of who you'd cast to host a show. She's too tall, not pretty enough, has a funny voice, like all of those <laughs> things. You'd be like, no, no, no. Was she 50 when she got her show? Roughly. She was in her late 30s when Mastering the Art was published. Uh, she was born in 1912. So I think the show, she was a little bit younger, but her career took off. She became famous and a household name, not until she was around 50. And she always said she didn't really learn to cook until she was 36, 34, 36. So... Yeah, I think it's all of those things is that she she defied the odds, she did things her own way, she was authentically herself, didn't compromise, and I think that's the biggest thing is that she found herself and her calling late in life, and then she succeeded as a woman also late in life and all the way into old age, and those things are just very inspiring to people. Yes, she certainly inspires us. I think she's one of oh, the yeah. most amazing women in history. She's very cool. So you're a consulting producer now on the show Julia, which is on Max, about to premiere the second season. I think today, actually. How did the show come together? It kind of brings together everything from your experience, both in entertainment and as the executive director of the Julia Child Foundation. Yeah, no, and even even dovetails with our relationship. So I was having lunch five or six years ago with your first agent, Kimberly Carver, who was <laughs> my colleague at Innovative Artists. And we had stayed in touch. At that point, she had moved. She stayed at Innovative a lot longer than me as an agent, and she had done a lot of reality television, and she had moved over to Anonymous Content. Sorry, she's now at Anonymous Content. She'd moved to uh, Three Arts Entertainment from Innovative and was you know, developing more of her work in scripted television and as a producer, and she said sort of what you said to me, which is, oh, my God, I love Julia Child. What can You're now working with the foundation. What can we do? I think she even said, I'd love to do a show about her, talked about all the things that she found interesting and that she loved about Julia's story. And we just developed a pitch from there. I think I pitched her something that I always found fascinating and under explored in all the lore about Julia, which is that 
she became famous on television at a time when television was in sort of its infancy. It wasn't brand new, but the 60s are really when television kind of came into its own. It's like the maybe the first period of peak TV. And it was she was also on public television. And at the time she was on public television, PBS barely existed as a national thing. So all of these things coincided at the same time. So it's like Julia and television grew up together, and that doesn't mm. get talked about. And I think that's really interesting to what you guys talk about on your podcast too, like being in the business and what that means. And then on top of that, you're talking the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s, civil rights movement, Vietnam War. And, you know, none of that's in the Nora Ephron movie. And and it's a very <laughs> fascinating, pivotal time. It's also the feminist movement was beginning and growing there as they depicted in one of the episodes in season one. So I just thought it's such a rich period of, t- of time in American history, in American television, and in Julia's life. It'd be really interesting to really zero in on that period. Well, and it comes off so great on the show. I mean, it's just... It, it's just so, it just brings you into that world and it's so much fun to watch. So, Todd, the show stars Sarah Lancashire, who's amazing. And if people don't know her, she's British and she stars in an amazing but disturbing show called Happy Valley. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you saw her as Julia? Were you just kind of blown away? Well, I would say I remember when Kimberly called me and said, we actually, um, I probably can't say because I don't know if it's public information, but the show was originally developed for a different actress, which is, as you know, very common in Hollywood. It yes. was There was a whole plan and a whole thing, and it was very exciting. And, and I think it was a big enough actress that that helped get the show moving it along. And I can't remember if she dropped out, but it basically didn't work out. And so they had to recast the role. And Kimberly called me with like three names, one of which was Sarah Lancashire. And I was obsessed with Happy Valley. It's it's a hard show to watch, but it is a brilliant television. And I hadn't really seen all of The Last Hango in Halifax, which in Britain she's most famous for. It's a kind of broader audience show. It's really lovely. That's more ensemble, too. So Happy Valley, she's really the star of it. Last Hango in Halifax, she's one of the leads. But just as soon as Kimberly said that, I was like, absolutely. She's just one of those actresses who can do anything. And I think the other great thing that I liked about, she's age appropriate too. So she's not Mm. someone 20 years younger than the role playing the role. So I think I went into it having just this high degree of confidence. And I think the first time I saw it, it wasn't like I was like, oh my God, she's Julia. I think I thought, oh, she's embodying the role in her own way. And I think you know, she doesn't do an accent like Meryl Streep does. Mm. Now she's doing an accent because she's British and she's playing an American, but she kind of found her (laughs) own way, which I've seen her talk about to do the voice, which I just thought, okay, well, she's not trying to imitate Meryl. And that I felt like would be a win, that, that the only way to do it with having played a role that another iconic actress played is to do it your own way. Well, she does, and she is... Truly phenomenal. Todd, we're going to shift gears a little bit because you have a podcast called Inside Julia's Kitchen. Mm -hmm. You've basically interviewed every famous chef and food person that exists. So people ask us all the time how you find time to do a podcast because you're obviously (laughs) very busy. So how how do you do this? How did I find time to do the podcast amongst (laughs) everything else I'm doing? Yes. 
you know, there's a saying that always says, if you want something done, ask a busy person. And, and <laughs> I, I, I do think that's kind of true. I think busy people are the ones who are too dumb to say no and just keep adding things to their plate until they sort of collapse. But you just make time. I do think we've done 200 plus episodes now. And I, I, we were doing 12 a season for three seasons a calendar year. And I did recently say, okay. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta slow the roll here. So we have moved because it was so time consuming. And I think, as you guys know, I think there's still. This might just be me being, you know, kind of a pain in the butt. But I feel like people still kind of think podcasts are done on the fly in your garage, and it doesn't matter if the guests can't. You know, it's like they don't really know. Like every time, and this didn't happen that often, but we did have guests, some famous guests, cancel at the last minute. And I'm like, this isn't just affecting me and you, the guest. There's like seven people involved in the production. Right. And you're screwing up their schedule and all of that. And I still think there's a little bit of that. But then I haven't worked in radio. I didn't work at The Tonight Show. So maybe that's always what happens with guest shows. I've realized that's why I like The Tonight Show and stuff. Remember, this is dating myself. But they used to be like these people that come up frequently. And you'd be like, oh, they're on again. They're fun. And then I realized... That's the person they knew they could book when someone canceled. Oh. Right. <laughs> but of course, at those shows, they have like a talent booker, which would yeah. be helpful. So, yeah. All right. Coming up, we will ask Todd for his advice to pre WGA writers. But first, this break. So, Todd, as we mentioned, you used to be an agent, and you introduced us to our first agent, for which we will forever be grateful to you. Most people are not that lucky that, you know, one of their best friends from high school happens to be an agent who's sharing an office with another agent who ends up being their their agent. Now you're a manager, very successful manager, what is your advice to pre-WGA writers who are looking for representation? Well, this is going to sound coy, but I was like, well, you should be listening to Happier in Hollywood. I think you guys give <laughs> really good advice on how to approach both a career as a writer and in the business. So I think I don't think I've ever disagreed with your advice that you give. It is hard. I would say... <laughs> You probably wouldn't be shocked. I get cold solicited because, you know, my agency is on, like, you know, various boards and whatever. The number of people who cannot write a coherent logline is extensive. Mm. And so right away, if, I mean, most of the stuff that I get sent unsolicited, I don't even respond to or pay attention to because it's incoherent. And I don't right. know if that's because the person isn't good at the marketing side of the job or they're not a good writer. So I think honing that upfront thing, you know, you guys say this a lot, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And if you have typos or it's not compelling, because it's especially in television, but film too, pitching is a big part of the job. And if you can't do the sales part that is literary to present your idea in a coherent way and an engaging way. But I think people get carried away that engaging means it needs to be about a cast of fire eating dragons comes to this sinister village and it has lots of adjectives in it. That I mean, I actually think the more compelling thing is something that is more human, but that also people add these like extensive crosses to their logline and you're just like that sounds ridiculous rather than interesting so that's good to know just having a really well crafted logline 
for whatever your idea is. Yeah, because that stands out to me. Out of 100 cold pitches I get, two of them are coherently written. But, but as a result, that stands out. I'll be like, oh. And I've, I've literally, I've signed clients when I was like, oh, that's the first coherent logline I've heard in forever <laughs> and gotten the script and it's been well-written. So the two definitely go together. Now, I think I'm a smaller shop, although actually the big agencies, assistants read all the time. I mean, usually yeah. you have to remember that the agent's probably not going to read your script, even if they request it. It's either going to get covered or the assistant's going to read it or a combination thereof. But as you also advise, assistants are really important. They are a way in the door. When I was an agent, there there was, I can think of one writer who an assistant championed their script. He got signed. That movie even got made. It got destroyed by the producer and the director. But it <laughs> happened, and that was from an assistant advocating that everyone needed to read the script because it was so well-written. So assistants are also a really key help, and because also you can network with an assistant, and the next week they can get hired as a junior executive somewhere, too. To go back to our the beginning of our conversation about Chris Nolan, there was a group of assistants who then became the next generation. I mean, there are very few executives in Hollywood who weren't assistants somewhere, and I would say it's it got to be at least 80% of the decision makers were um, assistants. So, you know, and it's still, I think, that's the other way to break in, and I think you guys have talked about in your podcast, is in my opinion, it is still well worthwhile if you're a writer to have an assistant job. to see, And that can be for a producer, it can be for a director on set, it can be at an agency. But I think it does two things, as I think you guys effectively point out too. It helps with networking helps get you out of your house, and it helps you see how the mechanics of the business work, particularly the decision-making and why there's a lot more to it than just the best writing. Mm, you know, yes. that there's politics involved, there's trends. As you guys know, the streamers lately have been changing their strategy. If you're lucky every six months, sometimes faster <laughs> than that. So it's like all of those things play into it because as people also like to say, it is called show business. It's not show fun. It's a business. And th these things matter a lot and they matter even more in television, which I came to later because I started in film. But what I like about TV is it has more clear metrics and of a game plan and a strategy. Film is still this thing of like, well, any film could work. Whereas at least broadcast television streamers, they know what is working and not working. And they have more of like, we're buying this this year. We want more of that. Like That exists a lot less in film. So it also means in television, though, like you could write a movie and it could go any direction. In television, as you know, if you develop something, chances are there are three or four buyers and the other 12 not relevant, not interested. So, you know, two sides of a coin. Well, speaking of assistance and how powerful they can be, because this goes back to Kansas City, Todd, I want to mm. tell you, we were just in a meeting with a very big company, and one of the ideas we got pitched had been brought up by an assistant who happened to go to our high school. Who Who is so young we wouldn't have known them because they were no we didn't yes, <laughs> yes. He's, he's like many 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 years young i think he graduated fairly recently in the next in the last like five or ten years anyway so i was we were so excited here is a perfect example of someone who is an assistant who discovered a property that's now being 
pitched to, you know, legit showrunners as a development project. So we were like, yeah, you go, Kansas City guy. I know. Well, there is a Pembroke Mafia, as you guys know. And and that's yes. also, I mean, just an origin story. It was someone who is a writer. I don't know what he's doing now, called Peter Egan, who is a bit older than us. And he was really friendly with my dad. And he was the one who encouraged me to come to L.A. And he, he was the one who introduced me to the first people that got my assistant job. So definitely, I think the moral of that story is networking is key, but you can use all different kinds of networks. You can use your high school network, your college network, some club you're a part of. And I think another really helpful thing is information interviewing instead of job interviews. I think so many people I know, and myself included, ended up getting jobs from meetings that came from just saying, hey, would you give me advice? Or, hey, what do you think? I, would you meet with me to talk about how this works? And, you know, it takes the pressure off. Um, it's sometimes circuitous. But, A, you can come away with good advice, a new connection, and oftentimes it can lead to position. Absolutely. Well, Todd, it has been so awesome to have you on the podcast. We've been yes. wanting to have you on, I think, since the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're it busy. You're busy people too. So everyone should watch Julia on Max starting its second season and also listen to your podcast inside julia's kitchen that would be great yes november 16th the first three episodes drop on max and it's one a week right up until christmas it's like perfect holiday viewing it's really good fun it's all about actually topics you guys talk about with struggling with uh, success and fame so like right you talk about it's such an uphill battle to get a show on and then you think you know you're on top of the mountain for about a minute before you have another mountain to climb you know, even in success. So it it very much uh, focuses on that in the second season. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Todd. See you soon. Great to be here. Bye. Next up, we have a binging Hollywood hack, but first this break. All right, Liz, it's time for this week's Hollywood hack, which came from our Happier in Hollywood retreat. When you are binging a show... Turn off the next episode after the teaser, because that way you don't get just sucked in completely to the next episode. Like, if you need to take a break, watch the teaser and then turn it off. Yeah, it's such a good idea because they get you with the cliffhanger ending, right? So you have to keep watching. But if you stop after the teaser, you know what's happened. You can go to bed. (laughs) And then the next day, you can continue on your way with the next episode. That would have saved me many sleepless nights if I had thought of that. So thank you for that hack. Yes. Okay, Sarah, it is time for celebrity sighting. Would you believe I had another celebrity sighting, although it's a repeat? Yes. This week, saw Lisa Rinna three times at Ryman Canyon. Lisa Rinna, Just one of the all-time week? great housewives. Yes, she and I both do Ryman Canyon often. Two of the times were the same hike. I passed her twice. Okay. <laughs> But it makes me happy every time I see her. I'm happy to report that much like her persona on social media, she is often like bopping along to music, dancing a little bit as she walks, smiling. She is always a joy to see. But Sarah, I think I'm not going to mention her again. I think this has got to be my last Lisa Rinna celebrity sighting because I'm just seeing her too often. So... (laughs) 
Just know I'm out there. I'm seeing Lisa Rinna. It's great. We'll just assume you saw her every week. Yes. <laughs> and then, Liz, you have a recommendation this week. Yeah, every week we're recommending something, a podcast, movie, book, TV show. This week, Sarah, I'm actually recommending a burger joint. Nice. And this is inspired by our discussion about Julia Child. I am recommending a place called The Spot in Carpinteria. Julia Child lived, um, I believe, in Santa Barbara for many, many years. And her favorite burger was at The Spot in Carpinteria, which is near Santa Barbara. And because of that, I went there. And Sarah... I can report this burger is amazing. Funny enough, the first time I had the burger at the spot was with Chuck, our producer, who introduced me to the spot. But it is wonderful. So if you're in that area, go to the spot and have a burger. Yes, I have been there as well because Carpinteria is really close to Ojai. And I have to say the fries are amazing, but just get one order. I got an order for Violet and an order for me, and that was a huge mistake. You just need one. (laughs) Yes, and this place is sort of the definition of beachside burger joint. I mean, it's not fancy, but it is so good. And that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Email us or send us a voice memo to happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please follow us if you haven't already. Thank you to our good friend, Todd Shulkin, for joining us today. Watch Julia on Max and listen to Todd's podcast, Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thank you to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Sankola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram at Sankola Sound. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Listen to the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, and Everything Happens with Kate Bowler. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram and threads at S. Fain, and Liz is at Liz Craft. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Liz Craft. And I'm Sarah Fain. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. Danielle, oh my gosh. Okay, so we've been talking to Chuck, who is your brother, about Julia Child, and he said that you have Julia Child stories. I do have a few. She's one of my absolute idols. Uh The first time I met her was in the early 90s uh, at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in San Francisco, where she she would always come back to the kitchen. She's come Uh back to the kitchen a few times where I've met her. Another time was at the Masters of Food and Wine event in Carmel, California that was incredible. And I also uh, represented some New York chefs when we had her 90th birthday celebration in Los Angeles. There was lots of different events, but I was at the Los Angeles one. But the best one was actually when I was 13 years old, my mom went to, attended a KCET fundraiser Uh and she got me a signed menu that Julia wrote to Bungie, love Julia. And I was 13 years old. That sort of cemented my fascination with her. That's so sweet. And did you already know you wanted to be a chef? You know, I did. Wow. Wow. And I still love it. That's so great. From the Onward Project.